Happy Father's Day to those fathers in the house. Let's clap it up for the fathers in the room. So I'm going to be a father of two. I have one daughter. She is three years old, but five years tall. <laughs> I wonder where she got the hype from. And then we are expecting another baby in the midst of moving back home, both of us starting new jobs and following the Lord. I'm excited. I'm excited. Yeah. But today is also another special day. Today is Juneteenth. Someone say Juneteenth. And I believe it's pretty phenomenal that Juneteenth and Father's Day land on the same day. And I was reflecting upon that convergence. And one of the fathers of abolition, Frederick Douglass, says this. He says that there's a great chasm between the Christianity of the land and the Christianity of Christ. He said that roughly over 100 years ago. Slavery was just 157 years ago. And so today is both a jubilant celebration, but also a sacred lament. Robbie Jones, the CEO and founder of the Public Religion, Religion Research Institute says this, we have a discipleship issue. If you're a white person and you do not go to church, you are 20 to 30% more likely to support racial justice movements. You're 20% to 30% more likely to believe Confederate monuments should come down. You're 20 to 30% more likely to believe that systemic racism exists than white people who go to church every Sunday. Martin Luther King Jr. in his letter in the Birmingham jail, in the midst of discomfort, pain, but deep resolve, says this, in the midst of a mighty struggle to, read, to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice, I've heard so many ministers say, those are social issues which the gospel has nothing to do with. Can I say this morning that Christians are still asking that same question? What does justice have to do with the gospel? I want to say this quote from Rich Velotis. He says that many in this generation do not want to hear our good news if it does not lead to a just world. Let me repeat that. Many in our generation do not want to hear our good news, our gospel message, if this gospel does not lead to a more just world. Can I give you guys some Bible facts really quickly? So during the time of slavery, they gave slaves a particular Bible. Within this Bible, 90%, someone say 90%. 90% of the Old Testament was removed. Five out of 67 chapters of the Minor Prophets were removed. Zero percent of the book of Amos was in the slave Bible. 
Could the reason be that we're asking the same question Martin Luther King asked roughly 50 years ago about justice relevancy in the gospel be because our Bible is more synonymous with the text that was used for oppression than the whole Bible that's telos or endpoint is justice. When was the last time we read the book of Amos? When was the last time we read the book of Nahum? When was the last time we read the book of Habakkuk? When was the last time we even read the Old Testament? Another way to put it is that the reason why we're still asking the question of justice and we think it's a political issue is because the Bible that we've been reading has been limited. Who's ready for the book of Amos today? I want, before we dive in, theologian Just Gusto Gonzalez says, without the Old Testament, the long story of Israel is curtailed to fuel an individualistic Christianity. And the role of Jesus is truncated for he is now limited to being a spiritual savior and is understood a part or separate from the great prophetic tradition of which he is part and culmination. I wanna say this, if you don't leave with anything, I want you to leave with this simple statement. Justice is not comfortable. Justice is not comfortable. If you all are able, I would love for you to flip to Amos chapter seven. We're gonna spend some time there. Amos chapter 7, but I'm going to read Amos verse, chapter 1, verse 1. Still hear Bibles flipping, I love it. So Jesus, we come before you open. Lord, we pray that you would help us become more like you that you would give us the heart for your justice. The same Spirit, Holy Spirit, that inspired the prophets, would you inspire me this morning? But would you also mobilize your people to leveling uneven paths and making crooked paths straight in our world? In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to read Amos 1 while you guys are at Amos 7. Amos 1 verse 1 says this. The message was given to Amos, a shepherd from the town of Tekoa in Judah. He received this message in visions two years before the earthquake when Uzziah was king of Judah and Jeroboam II, the son of Jehoshaphat, was king of Israel. A bit of context that you guys have already heard potentially is that the minor prophets were written in a pre-exilic period before the Israelites were enslaved into exile. And during this time period, there was a division between the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And so Amos is a prophet from the southern kingdom going to preach to a people group in the northern kingdom. 
What's interesting is that there's no political affiliations that can blind him from seeing injustice. He's going into a new context. He's going to the north, and he's from the south. There are certain, there are certain relationships that he did not have that dissuaded him from speaking truth to power. I want to make this point. Sometimes separation grants us clarity. Sometimes having a different social location, sometimes having a different perspective helps us to see when there is injustice at work. It often takes us getting outside of our own water to see that the water that we've been swimming in has been toxic. And so separation grants us clarity. It's instigating a prophetic edge to see injustice clearly. Let's go to Amos chapter 7. You guys are there, right? Amos chapter 7, verse 10. And I'll read. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent a message to Jeroboam, king of Israel. Amos is hatching a plot against you right here on your very doorstep. What he is saying is intolerable. He is saying Jeroboam will soon be killed and the people of Israel will be sent away into exile. Verse 12. Then Amaziah sent orders to Amos. Get out of here, you prophet. Go back to the land of Judah, keywords, and earn your living by prophesying there. Don't bother us with your prophecies here in Bethel. This is interesting. This is the king's sanctuary and the national place of worship. It's funny how religious nationalism always tries to shut up the prophetic voice. Let me say that for those in the back. It's funny how religious nationalism always tries to shut up the prophetic voice, which in turn shut up God. Verse 14, but Amos replied, I am not a professional prophet. I was never trained to be one. I'm just a shepherd. <laughs> I take care of sycamore fig leaves. Someone say proximity. But the Lord called me away from my flock and told me, go and prophesy to my people in Israel. So check this out. Amos is a sheep and cattle herder, and he's also a farmer. I approached the text and I'm thinking, usually farmers are poor. But I did some research. Amos was actually a pretty wealthy individual. And so Amos' solidarity did not derive from his social economic status, but it derived from proximity and calling. Someone say proximity and calling. What's interesting is that so often we think that Justice is just a people of color issue. Justice is just the person who's on the social, the lower social economic status. That's their issue. But we clearly see in this text that Amos was from some form of wealth. But what called him to justice was God and not his circumstances. What also called Amos to justice was his proximity. He was close to people, such as farmers. We're going to find in the later chapters that Amos is 
prophesying specifically to aid people who are farmers as well. But there's an interesting separation between Amaziah, the paid priest, and Amos, the unpaid prophet. Money is very interesting. Amaziah was a paid priest. And so in that context, Amaziah was entangled by status and money. And therefore, he was doing everything in his power to protect the unjust empire. Remember in the verses? Get this prophet out of here. Go prophesy and earn your living somewhere else. But Amos was called by God out of his comfort zone into another region. And he was able to see the injustice clearly and speak truth to power. Another way to put it is Amos was free from the entanglements of money, status, and power, empowering him to preach and critique to the northern kingdom without restraint. Sometimes, as a preacher, can I be vulnerable? We don't want to say things because we're afraid of the financial cost of saying things. We don't want to speak on topics because we're afraid that tithing and giving will go down. One of my heart postures, even entering into the ministry, is that somehow, some way, whether it's through passive income, that I'm free from the entanglements of the church paying me so that I can speak truth to power and not be afraid of the financial repercussions. Verse 15 says this, but the Lord called me away from my flock. This is so interesting. Amos is a wealthy cattle person, cattle herdman, and God calls him out of his livelihood. God calls him out of his comfort zone. Can I say this? The pursuit of justice is always beyond the realm of comfort. The pursuit of justice is always beyond the realm of comfort. Amos had to leave his wealth. He had to leave his property. He had to leave his privilege. He had to lay those things down to follow the call of God to prophesy to the northern kingdom. This resonates deeply with me in so many ways. Me and my wife, we left our corporate jobs to come to the south. Opposite of Amos, he left his job to go to the north. What's also interesting is that Amos is coming from a different social location than the north. I'm a northerner coming to you all from a different social location than you all in the south. And Amos is coming out of his comfort zone. Can I be real with you all? When I first communicated to a predominantly white church, I was terrified. I was terrified. And guess what? The Lord gave me a word on justice when I came down here. <laughs> and so I'm looking at God, I'm like, God, you want me, a Nigerian American from the north, to leave my job, leave comfort, leave financial stability, leave my community to go to the south to preach a message on justice? You must be kidding. 
And guess what? Now God is calling me to communicate this message to four of the grace churches. Talk about uncomfortable. The pursuit of justice is always beyond the realm of comfort. And so I have to deal with things. I have to, and again, my personality type, I'm not confrontational. I'm diplomatic. I like to ease things in. When you want to give a message of critique or you're a coaching conversation, whether you're at work, right, you sandwich it, right? You, you give good, you give an excellent affirmation then a critique, and then you sandwich it with another affirmation or encouragement. I came off strong this morning, didn't I? <laughs> no, it was not a burger. It was straight meat, right? <laughs> and so I have to battle with the discomfort of my personality. I'm not naturally bent to be confrontational. I'm not an Enneagram 8. I'm a 3. So I like to figure myself around. I like to manipulate myself. But again, God calls us out of our comfort zone for the pursuit of justice. Also, as an Enneagram 3, I fear rejection. And so sometimes I wonder if we fear rejection more than fear of being complicit with oppressive systems. Maybe the reason why we are silent is because we fear the rejection of men versus fearing God. But as I reflect on my personal story, me and my wife, we left our home, we left our friends, we left money on the table, we left a lot of things. What's interesting is that when you surrender to follow, when you surrender everything to follow God's will, you have nothing to lose when you speak God's word. When you surrender everything, everything, to follow God's will, everything is gone. Everything is surrendered. So you have nothing to lose when I speak God's word. I have nothing to lose. I want to challenge you all today. What is your posture towards comfort? What is your posture towards the things in your life? Are they inhibitors of you following God's will and speaking God's word, or are they activators, agents that enable you to follow God's will and speak God's word? And so we see that the messenger is also the message. Amos, as the messenger, is the message. I was telling the pre-service gathering prayer that the word Amos, his name Amos, in the Hebrew means burden bearer. Amos, his name literally means burden bearer. And I started to reflect upon the burden of a prophet, and it's twofold. The first burden that the prophet has is deep compassion for people. As you all are reading through the book of the 12, you're going to sense that the, the prophet isn't simply angry. He is angry. But in that anger, he has a deep compassion for people. But then the prophet also carries another burden, deep empathy for God. And so he's, this prophet is managing the tension. He's carrying the burden, and he's delivering this word to people who don't want to hear him. The messenger is the message. I want you all to flip to Amos chapter 5. We're going to find out 
why they wanted to shut up Amos. Amos chapter 5. Verse 10, how you hate honest judges, how you despise people who tell the truth. You trample the poor, stealing their grain through taxes and unfair rent. Someone say systemic sin. If you didn't know where systemic sin is, it's in the Bible, by the way. Therefore, though you build beautiful stone houses, you will never live in them. Though you plant lush vineyards, you will never drink wine from them. For I know the vast number of your sins and the depth of your rebellion. You oppress good people by taking bribes and, de- and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Verse 15, hate evil and love what is good. Turn your courts into true halls of justice. Perhaps even yet the Lord God of heaven's army will have mercy on the remnant of his people. I'm going to read Amos 6, verse 1. Verse 1 says this. What awaits you who lounge in luxury? Someone say lounge. In luxury. In Jerusalem, you who feel secure in Samaria, you are famous and popular in Israel, and people go to you for help. You push away even thought, every thought of the coming disaster. I want to pause here. Amos is, he's giving this critique. He's saying, you push away every thought of coming disaster. They were literally denying things. They were living in denial to maintain comfort. But your actions only bring the day of judgment closer. How terrible for you who sprawl on ivory breads and lounge on your couches, eating the meat of tender lambs from the flock and of choice cows fattened in the stall, and you sing trivial songs in the sound of the harp, and fancy yourself to be great like <clears throat> great musicians like David. You drink wine by the bowlful and perfume yourselves with fragrant lotions. I want you guys to pay attention to this. You care nothing about the ruin of your nation. I know we just read a whole bunch of verses, but there are key things, metaphoric pictures that are standing out. All around this word, comfort. You all saw the lounges, the wine by the bowlful, the, the tender lamb. I love lamb chops. The tender lamb chops that they had. The ivory beds, the mansions. But then we also see something interesting there. Oppression of people. Comfort and luxury for the few by the oppression of the many. Verse 10 and 12, we see that the exploitation of the marginalized, that fuels the ease and the opulence of the powerful. So often, We compromise justice for the sake of profit and comfort. And that leads to the oppression of people in this country and others globally. Let me step on a little bit of toes. I'm gonna step on my toes first. So I like fashion, right? I love fashion. 
But about two years ago, I stumbled upon some interesting facts about the fashion industry called fast fashion. Because of my desire for luxury and my desire for comfort, what's interesting about that connection is that these fast fashion brands don't give fair wages to people overseas. And so my desire for comfort, my desire for opulence, my desire for a cheaper pair of pants comes at the expense of the oppression of others globally. I said earlier that in this text, we see this, the oppression of the many is fueling the profit of others. I'm going to go there today. The prison system literally is built based off of the oppression of the marginalized, just to fill jails, to be able to make money for those who run those facilities. The oppression of the many to fuel the profit of the few. Jamar Tisby, in his book, Color of Compromise, says this. Historically speaking, when faced with the choice between racism and equality, the American church has tended to practice a complicit Christianity rather than a courageous Christianity. They chose comfort over constructive conflict, and in doing so, created and maintained a status quo of injustice. In what areas do we choose comfort and luxury at the expense of the oppression of others? And so this metaphor of comfort is bleeding through the text. If you read, I challenge you all to read Amos and just highlight words that speak to comfort. It's just everywhere. It's literally everywhere. And you see the connection between the comfort of the few and the oppression of the many. But metaphors give a message. Are you guys ready for the message? Let's go to Amos. Chapter 2. We're all in the book of Amos today. Amos chapter 2. <clears throat> I'm going to read verses 6 through 8. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke its punishment, but they, because they sell the, righteousness, the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who pant after the very dust of the earth on the heads of the helpless also turn aside the way of the humble, and man and his father resort to the same girl in order to profane my holy name. Verse 8. On garments taken as pledges, they stretched out beside every altar. In the house of their God, someone say their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. 
Amos chapter 5, 21 says this in the message. I can't stand your religious meetings. I'm fed up with your conferences and conventions. I want nothing to do with your religion reports or projects or your pretentious slogans and goals. I'm sick of your fundraising schemes, your public relations and image making. I've had, a, I've had all I can take of your noisy ego music. When was the last time you sang to me? Do you know what I want? I want justice, oceans of it. I want fairness, rivers of it. That's what I want. That's all that I want. Can you put the slide up? What's interesting in this text is that the metaphor of comfort, we see it blatant. There's two ways that are being illuminated in this text. The first, the one of comfort, we see ivory beds, we see, see stone houses, we see couches, we even see a man in a toga eating grapes. But what's interesting about this picture is that it's static. The man in the toga is not moving. Bed is not meant for activity. It's meant for lounging and sleeping. We see there's a complacency. Life is reserved for self. There's no movement towards progress. We can enjoy the laurels of the past. We see comfort. But then God in this text is saying, hey, hey, I don't want anything about I don't want to deal with your religious pretentiousness that serves as an excuse for oppression. But I want righteousness like a flood. I want justice like a river. If you look at this picture, we can see the activity, the life that this, these waters bring, but also potential destruction. We see it as dynamic. It's uncontrollable. It gives life to the surrounding areas. It's progressive, but one thing that it's not, it's not comfortable. Imagine trying to get on a raft boat and going down that river. It's not comfortable. In these following verses, we saw that there was idolatry in the land. But also in, this, in, this, in these verses, the idolatry, the gods that they were worshiping, they were using garments bought through oppressive systems. There's a connection between idolatry and injustice. There's a steep connection, and the prophets help us to see this connection, specifically that the idolatry of comfort can lead to the oppression and the injustice of those in our country. The question I want to ask you all today, God was pretty pissed in verse 5 around the religious meetings, around the pretentiousness, around the schemes, around the public relations. He, he was pretty pissed. The question I want to ask to you all today is that, are we simply building a religious empire for the powerful? Or are we flowing in the river of God's justice for the powerless? I want to ask that again. 
Are we building this empire that gives comfort to the few, that gives opulence for the few? Or are we getting out of our comfort zone and jumping into the river of justice that is uncomfortable, but actually frees and liberates the powerless? As a person of color, as a desiring, aspiring theologian, I'm asking myself, is the work, is the communication, is the preaching, is that benefiting the powerful or is it benefiting the disinherited, the disenfranchised, the powerless, the ones without a voice? The book of Amos is giving voice to those who have been shut up for years. Let the prophets speak again. Let the prophets speak again. Let the prophets speak on behalf of the voiceless again. But so often as the church, we shut up the voiceless and we shut up the voice of God in the prophets. I want to invite the band to come up. To be honest, and I want to share my heart, the past two to three years as a person of color in this country has been exhausting. It's been tiring. Even as a father, speaking on Father's Day, and I'm reflecting upon the act of violence that occurred in that school, it's just exhausting to see injustice and violence and oppression happen to people who do not have a voice. Those kids can't vote. And sometimes, as a father, if my, if my daughter doesn't she disobeys or she does something that she's not supposed to do. So often, I, I, I think punishment is the right option. And sometimes we look at God the same way. We project our character flaws onto God. And so if God were to see the injustice, the oppression in this land, America deserves punishment. What's interesting about God and the fatherhood of God, in Amos chapter 4, if you read it, there's so many elements in which God is communicating the punishment, but the interesting word that comes up many times is, yet you did not hear me, yet you did not hear my voice. So he gives a punishment, yet you did not return to me. Comes another punishment, yet you did not return to me. Another punishment. Five times that happens in this passage. But then he says, therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel. So I'm thinking, me, my punishment bent. I'm thinking, bet. These Israelites, they're going to get it. They've been oppressing people for a while. They're going to get this final punishment. It says, therefore, thus I will do to you. He sounds like, I'm thinking, God sounds just like me. O Israel. Because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. But what is very interesting about that word prepare is that it's not 
punishment, but it's restorative. That word prepare means to prepare for a divine encounter. God saw that the punishment was not working. And so instead of punishment, he gives presence. That's a Father's Day message. Instead of punishing his kids, which didn't return to him, punishing his kids because of the idolatry, because of the the, the oppression that was in the land, because of the injustice, instead of punishment, he gives presence. For me, as I'm thinking about this passage and I'm thinking about this nation, People don't need punishment. They need presence. They need the presence of God to utterly change their hearts. But not only do people need presence, systems need presence. Organizations need the presence of God. The justice system needs the presence of God. But sometimes presence doesn't come as a congratulations, but it might come as conviction. And so I want us to stand, if you're able. As a loving father, in this text, in the midst of injustice, God meets them with mercy. The justice that they deserved, God gives them true justice, which actually compels them to live a life of justice. And that justice is restorative, not punitive. And so hear me when I say this. This message wasn't here to release any form of guilt or punishment, but to actually open your heart a little bit more, just a little bit, for more presence. There's one thing about deception. Deception closes our hearts to the presence of God. But when truth comes, and sometimes it comes and it cuts, but that cut creates an open, an opening, so that God's presence can come in and utterly transform you into being a person that looks like Jesus. So what powerful way for us to do an acknowledgement of both Father's Day, God's mercy and God's grace, but then also an acknowledgement of Juneteenth, but to take communion together as a body. What's powerful about communion is that it destroys the dividing walls between the powerful and the powerless. They come together at the same table to eat before the Lord. And what happens in communion is that they all see Jesus clearly. Jesus is not just an individual savior, but he's the cosmic justice advocate. And so I want to invite you all to prayerfully get communion and come back. We're going to take it together corporately. If you're able, 
I think there's communion right there on the left and on the right. We're going to do this as a family. lead us in the communion piece. But as the band starts to worship, I would love for you all to just reflect. In what ways am I idolizing comfort, luxury, self, at the expense of others? So as they sing this song, just reflect on that question. 